Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a new companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada. I work at Netflix. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast, and I'm definitely not wearing monochrome red right now. Every other week on You Can't Make This Up, we feature a new interviewer discussing a different Netflix series or film with special guests. And all of the stories are surprisingly true, like Wild Wild Country. It's a six-part documentary series that follows the Rajneesh Perone, a so-called sex cult from India that takes over a small Oregon town. And it's what we're talking about for our first full-length episode. Today's interviewer is Lindsay Weber, who you usually hear as the co-host of the pop culture podcast, Who Weekly. Lindsay sits down with the directors of Wild Wild Country, brothers Chapman Way and McLean Way. If you haven't watched the series, pause this episode and go finish it. There are spoilers ahead. But if you don't mind those, play on. And now, here's Lindsay Weber with Wild Wild Country directors Chapman and McLean Way. Hey there, I'm Lindsay Weber, host of the pop culture podcast Who Weekly, but today I'm on You Can't Make This Up. I'm so excited to be here interviewing the directors of the insanely captivating Netflix original documentary series Wild Wild Country. I'm here with Chapman and McLean Way. Welcome to the show. Do you guys, because there's two of you and one of me, and you're both dudes, why don't you introduce yourself so people will know the difference between your voices, maybe? <laughs> yeah, hi. Uh, this is Chapman Way, and I am one of the co-directors on Wild Wild Country. And my name is McLean Way. Um, I think my voice might be a little higher. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm Chapman's younger brother and the, the other co-director on Wild Wild Country. <laughs> you sound a lot alike to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was going to say, so you guys are brothers. Are you, you're not twins. You're, how old are you guys, and are how many years apart are you? <laughs> Yeah, this is Chapman. I'm uh, 31 years old. Yeah, I'm 27, so there's about a four, four-and-a-half-year age difference there. And you guys have been working together as brothers and creative partners for, like, a while. When did you start working together? Like, because I feel like family, it's tough to work together as a family. We started working together in about 2013, and uh, it's kind of Mac and I and then my wife, Juliana, who's our producer, who produces all of our stuff. And so... The three of us kind of uh, joined forces in, in, in around 2013, 2014 to make a documentary, which was our first documentary, called The Battered Bastards of Baseball, which was a Netflix original documentary about a minor league baseball team that our grandfather owned. And uh, we've always just had a love for film and, and documentaries especially, and um, we just really enjoy making them. Yeah, this is McLean. We kind of had a great like partnership and obviously still do chap like kind of went to film school proper and i was actually a, a history major at, at ucla and he went to the film school there um and so documentary was kind of like this great little like uh, middle ground between us where it was kind of like i could do a lot of the research and the archive footage and do a lot of the interviews and and then we would both kind of collaborate on the story and how we kind of wanted to edit the story together but then chap has a, a deep knowledge of, of film and and, and shoots the interviews and lights them and is also an editor himself. And he edited our first documentary, The Batter Bastards of Baseball. So, um, yeah, it's been a good fit from day one. That's so funny that it's it really is like a mixing of film and history because there's so much about storytelling and the way that people like to watch film and like to have the story, you know, unfurled for them. But then history is not always perfect in terms of storytelling. So like having the like negotiation between you guys figuring out how do we tell this in an interesting way, but also like be truthful to like the history of what's happening, especially when it's your own family story. So that first documentary was like obviously close to home, you know. Absolutely. I think one of the things we're kind of really interested in is we're, 
the documentary field has been progressing in the, in the last decade or so where they're not necessarily just informative pieces, but they really are these kind of cinematic journeys that you can go on. And I think Mac and I are really excited about making these immersive experiences for the audience. You know, we don't have narrators that tell you what's going on or tell you that how, how you should feel. We really kind of uh, try to do these character pieces um, where you really get to know the characters and go on their journey with them. Yeah, and for me, it was just like fascinating because we didn't really set out to become like these archival documentary filmmakers, but those are certainly the stories that we're attracted to. I think for one reason or another, we're attracted to these kind of forgotten stories um, that were very significant to people who lived them. Um, And so we like to talk to people who, you know, something very important happened to them 30, 35 years ago. That was certainly the case with the Portland Mavericks, which was the subject of our first documentary. And that was very much the case of um, the story with Wild Wild Country where we were reaching out to people. This story happened 30, 35 years ago. And in a lot of ways, the immediate feedback that we were getting from people who lived this was that, for better or worse, this was probably the most significant thing that had ever happened to them in their entire life. And so as documentary filmmakers, when you're like working with someone who has such stakes in the story, not only do you like creatively feed off their, their stakes and their passion for the story, but it also does make the story more immersive and ultimately, I think, like hopefully more entertaining for an audience who just is going to be coming to the story story for the first time. And that's kind of why I loved this so much was because you guys are my age. So like we were born like kind of slightly after this happened. So not only like I'd never heard of this, like never read about it, didn't come up at any point. And like, you know, cults are kind of an interest of people like they get fascinated and you kind of go down this K-hole. But this one never came up. So I guess where did you come across uh, the Rajneeshis for the first time? And, you know, how did you kind of put yourself in the mindset to make a documentary? Like, did it help that you knew nothing about them? Or do you feel like maybe if you had known a little bit more, it would have given more context to the story? Yeah. So the whole journey for us kind of started about four years ago in 2014. um, And this is Chapman speaking. Uh, And we were basically given a tip from an archivist at the uh, Oregon Historical Society up in Portland, Oregon, um, who basically said that he had this incredible collection of archive footage that detailed pretty much what he explained to us as the most bizarre story that ever happened in the history of Oregon. And and he told us about this cult and this guru that built this $125 million utopian city. He told us how they took over political control of the local town of Antelope. And and then they tried to take over the county. They bust in thousands of homeless people so they would have enough votes to take over the county. And and then ultimately ended up kind of poisoning a huge population of 750 people to prevent them from voting on Election Day. And my first reaction was just how how have I never heard about this story? This is such a this is such an insane American story. We've all heard of Jonestown. We've all heard of Waco. How has it been that this has kind of like slipped under the cracks? And so we immediately started doing some research and. I think once we started researching the story and getting to know the characters, we actually found a, like a really complex underbelly to this story that dealt with a lot of really interesting topics like religious rights, um, you know, deals with the Second Amendment. It deals with politics. It deals with fear of the other. It deals with immigration. And so I think once we started seeing all these like really pertinent topics underneath the kind of sensationalist, you know, story that people were somewhat familiar with, we, we just really felt this would be like an incredible story to do a deep dive six episode exploration of. Yeah, and I think that like almost not knowing anything about it actually ultimately ended up kind of helping us because I think 
for for better or worse, it kind of we were in a great position where we were allowed to like kind of suspend judgment on like a lot of our characters and a lot of the people on both sides of the story, um, which I don't think is really possible if you like grow up hearing one side of the story and you're been influenced by it from day one, or if your life was legitimately like traumatized by the arrival of these people in Oregon, or if you were a part of this community and you felt like you had committed your life to building this utopian ideal and you felt like it had been destroyed by your neighbors that you had moved next to in Eastern Oregon. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even passing judgment on the people that have judgment of these people. I totally understand what that would be like. But the fact that Chap and I, we grew up in the 90s in Los Angeles and just having no idea about the story growing up, as we started to dive into it, it kind of allowed us to just with an open mind kind of hear from two sides that just remain so entrenched against each other, just kind of what it was like and their sides of the story. And hopefully that's kind of why we are so excited to do it in the episodic format. Why do you think that the story of this this cult kind of didn't get as much attention as like Heaven's Gate and all and Jonestown and all those places because it's just crazy to me that this is not one of those that's just mentioned alongside. I mean, I think now it will be, but it isn't like in that list of, you know, of, of cults that we always bring up. Basically, what, what, what we found out was there, there was kind of a few components to this. And one was, you know, no one died. You know, even how insane and bizarre the poisonings and some of the political assassination attempts and no one did die. And I think with Jonestown and Waco, obviously the death toll was such a huge number that it became such international news that this one kind of slipped under the radar. I think another another aspect to this is that the guru kind of changed his name from Bhagwan Rashnish to Osho and the organization did this whole rebranding a couple of years before he died. And, you know, this whole Oregon chapter was was taken out of his biographies and they kind of whitewashed this chapter of the guru. Um, and I think because he was able to rebrand so successfully, a lot of people don't make the connection between the spiritual guru Osho, who's pretty well known today, and 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 the guru Bhagwan Rashnish. Yeah, even in Oregon. I mean, we kind of knew that Rashnishis would be hesitant to talk about this because I know from their perspective, there was so much like pain and trauma in this whole story. Um, the ranchers, I just thought, I was kind of naive. I just thought that they would be very eager to talk about this, but they were just as hesitant. I mean, the pain and trauma was just as much there for them too. And so it took us a while to kind of break through um, the obvious immediate hesitancy of being interviewed on camera about this. It was it was certainly a struggle in the beginning. When did you realize when you're asking all these people, like, talk to us, talk to us, who was the person who was like the linchpin? When you got them, you're like, we have this. You know, like for me, like the fact that you had Sheila and as it unfolded, Sheila became such a central character, which you kind of don't realize in the beginning how important she is, you know, because for these documentaries, it almost feels like if one person's missing, you couldn't do it. And it would be a huge waste of a lot of time and effort if you can't get that one person to agree. That's totally true. I think the first step we did in 2014 was really start to digitize and transfer this huge collection of archive footage that was, I think, a little over 300 hours. And as soon as we started kind of watching the footage, the first character that really just jumped out at us was was Ma Nanshila, who was, you know, the guru's kind of right hand arm or right hand man, so to speak. And we kind of as we got deeper and deeper into the footage and the story, we just knew she was such an integral part of this whole Roshnish Perm experiment that it would just we almost just felt like we had to talk to her if we were gonna make this in a long form series. And so, you know, we we 
kind of did some internet Googling and searching and tried to track down a website and somehow got an email address um, that we found for one of our health institutions that that she runs in Switzerland. And we just sent her an email and introduced ourselves and asked if we could get her on the phone to talk to her. And as soon as we started talking to her, she was a little hesitant the first few minutes, but it became clear after talking to her that she just really feels like She's never really been given an opportunity to kind of walk an audience through how she saw these events unfold. Um, Getting Sheila was so essential to the story of Wild Wild Country. We knew that we absolutely had to get her on board. But it actually wasn't even until the end of the interview at the end of the five days when Chab and I were kind of just as exhausted as Sheila was at the end of this whole process that I think we even looked at each other. And it was like the first time that we always knew we could make a documentary series on on Rashmish Perm. But at the end of that interview, like we knew that we had something pretty special on our hands. I I go very back and forth on Sheila because I don't want to devalue, like I don't want to say that she's good because she's clearly not, but I love her and she is so truly perverse and complicated. It's so, she's so incredible. And like, I guess my question is you're, you spent so much time with her. Like, did you go back and forth and kind of believing her, not believing her, buying her story, not buying her story? Like, I would join the cult that she was leading. Like, I just, I felt it. It was so, she's so compelling. She's more compelling than Bogwan. We don't really get a ton of FaceTime with him. But she was like, I was like, I'm in, whatever. I don't care, you know? It was so crazy. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing about Sheila is, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, true crime shows about, you know, what we call, quote unquote, you know, psychopaths, you know, and, the really interesting thing about getting to know Sheila and getting to know people who knew Sheila before she joined this Roshnish movement and as a young girl going to college in America and talking to friends of hers. And it was just very clear that, you know, they all talked about Sheila as being this very ambitious, smart, charming, creative. She was a very talented artist. She was a fine art major. And this person that people really gravitated to, they really enjoyed her company. Um, She was really precocious. And um, I think it's really fascinating to kind of watch this journey and and watch her devotion to this man and to this movement and and ultimately where it leads her. I more just cannot believe that this, first of all, you started with her very, very sad story about her first love and how, and and, you know, it really wraps you up in her story. Like clearly you guys knew what you were doing when you kind of wanted us to empathize with her and feel like this woman needs direction. She just like lost her love of her life. And then ending with her at doing good things in Switzerland, which is just crazy because if you are not a escaping something who goes to switzerland i'm sorry like switzerland (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) yeah i yeah i think that's what's really kind of what was fascinating to us is because when we were doing we did some pre-interviews with some you know state and government officials and before we did our interviews and and this was a woman that they referred to us as quote unquote pure evil and as someone who lacked zero empathy. And so that was the kind of tidbits of information that we were given before meeting Sheila. And I think, obviously, when you see her grieving through the death of her first husband and becoming widowed at such a young age, you do see that there are emotions and that there is empathy in this woman. I mean, we spent time with her. Like, she works incredibly hard 
doing what she does now, which is taking care of mentally ill people. And even when cameras weren't rolling or when she didn't think we were around, I saw firsthand the kind of dedication that she gives to her patients now. And it's not an easy job what she does. And so hopefully that's kind of one of the interesting components of this series is you kind of have to reconcile this person who committed these kind of like atrocious criminal activities with with someone who who maybe also does have a good side. Right. What I love, you know, it's like a when you're structuring a documentary like this, everyone's waiting for the turn because up until a certain point, you're like, there's these people. They seem pretty chill. They're doing their own thing. They're really good at building stuff. They all seem to like each other, blah, blah, blah. Like you're waiting for it to turn because in the beginning you're saying this happened and anyone could just hop on Wikipedia. And a lot of them probably did and said, oh, my God, what is going to happen? Because it isn't there's no spoilers. It's a it ha- it's an event. So I guess I get my question is, when did you know this is the problem with these people. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. Well, I think just, yeah, just to kind of step back, I think the first thing we realized once we started reaching out to these sannyasins and ex-sannyasins, um, that's what they call themselves, the the members of this movement, um, was really like how intelligent and thoughtful and highly accomplished these individuals were in their previous lives. These were people that worked on Wall Street. These were high-powered attorneys. These were uh, civil engineers that kind of all bound together to create this ideal utopian vision. So we knew that it was important to spend some time early on in the series, at least the first episode, giving that background to the audience so that you understood their intentions and that you understand that these are not just a bunch of insanely bizarre, crazy individuals. You know, these are your neighbors. These are your uncles. We were less interested in getting into the belief systems because every group thinks every other group's belief system is bizarre. And so we were more interested in showing this ideal utopia that they wanted to build, you know, uh, solar energy, greenhouse farming, organic foods, and then kind of show a little bit how this group was forced through what they perceived to be outside pressures. You know, they they felt that they were being persecuted against. They felt that there was bigotry towards them. And so I think the first time as the audience, you start to see, oh, no, this is maybe going to go off the rails a little bit, is when you see their response to the hotel bombing. Basically, their hotel in Portland, two pipe bombs explode through their hotel. No one dies, but it's an incredibly traumatic event for them. And Sheila's reaction to this is, to arm several members inside the commune with AK-47s and assault rifles, and they train them with ex-military members how to use these weapons to defend themselves from attacks from the outside world. And I think it's a shocking image when you see this pacifist spiritual group um, that doesn't believe in violence, that doesn't believe in arming yourself, uh, you know, turn to these very high-grade, powerful weapons to defend themselves from the outside world. Right, which is interesting because, and you mentioned this, and this is one of the questions I did have for you, is that you hadn't focused so much on what they actually believe in at all. So as you're going through this, you're like, what are their, what's their belief system again? I know they don't love God. They don't have a God, but they, do they? What do they do? They like sex, but and, and they meditate or whatever. But like, because you don't focus on it, you're losing track of what is this centralizing force aside from now this place, you know? Yeah, it's been really interesting because a lot of people have have kind of mentioned that to us. Like, well, what did they believe in? And 
And we truly felt like we, we kind of covered it in episode one, which is, you know, this wasn't a, you know, bizarre belief system where they believed if you do this, you'll go to an afterlife or things like this. It was really they believed in meditation. You know, they believed in open sex. They believed in accumulation of wealth. And it was really more of just like this new age human potential movement that was kind of sweeping the nation and the world. It was less of like a religious doctrine than it was um, more of a new age movement. And so by today's standards, you know, their belief system is pretty, you know, not that sensationalist compared to what it was in the early 80s. They're kind of like chill capitalists or something like they're like capitalists who like want a break like and and live on live together right yeah exactly it was it was one of those things where like as chap and i would talk to sannyasins about their like devotion to Bhagwan, it kind of was something that was hard to like intellectualize like it wasn't something that i totally understood myself um but it was something that you kind of just end up taking them at their word for it if they're telling you that this is how they felt about this man i mean on a certain point i think it would be comparable to like a family member like i don't think that there's like a a very like explainable logic for why you feel such a deep connection to the members of your own personal family. But I think that when they looked up and saw Baguan, they certainly had that same type of, you know, love and feeling and um, connection to him. The, I, the fact is that we kind of started out to tell a story of Roshnish Perm, and that was always our intention. The fact is, is that he takes a vow of silence, like, right when he gets to America. <laughs> so it's like, as filmmakers, working with archive footage and also talking and doing our own interviews, it actually was hard to bring Baguan, the leader of this movement, into the story fully because he was quiet for the four, first four years and it created a massive power vacuum within that community that obviously Sheila filled up and then some. I mean, Sheila kind of ran that community top down um, while Baguan was kind of hanging out in his house. And so obviously when Baguan breaks his vow of silence after Sheila leaves the ranch, then we start to see him kind of try to take control again of and grab the reins of the movement. That's yeah. I mean, that was kind of incredible and also proof that if you want to lead a movement, you should just not talk. You should write a book and then stop talking because people will think that you're very wise and you won't have to. (laughs) Yeah, I think that with a lot of these, it's really interesting, like the projection that that we can put on people, you know, and and if you are in silence, um, there is obviously a lot. Yeah, I mean, and that was so interesting because even one of our talking head interviews who was a sannyasin back in the ranch and still considers himself a sannyasin talked openly to us about like it's a razor's edge where basically, you know, they're at a fundamental core of their belief system is that they want to walk a path of enlightenment. They want to reach enlightenment in their lifetime. Um, and that through that path of enlightenment, like you got to drop the ego and sometimes you need to devote yourself and surrender yourself to something. Um, but he talked about how that devotion and surrender is a double-edged sword and how it's so dangerous on the other side too. And how ultimately in his words, he says it can lead people and it did lead, lead people into doing things that they shouldn't have done. And this is coming from a guy who uh, still considers himself highly devoted to Osho and Osho's teachings. Um, So I never got the sense that they weren't like aware of what their devotion to Osho means. Um, In fact, they were openly willing to to engage with us and talk about kind of um, the downfalls or the pitfalls that that, that sometimes can come along with that for some people. Yeah. I want to ask you because you did bring it up. So you talked to very specific people in the group and and the lawyer and you talked to Jane, who was the one who ended up 
trying to kill someone. But I assume you did also just talk to kind of normal, more everyday type followers who were living there. I mean, there were so many of them there. How did you decide who to like leave in and take out? I feel like, do you feel like maybe we were missing kind of that everyday person who just kind of like joined up and and wasn't really part of any type of leadership or anything like that? Yeah, we kind of wanted to give like a wide range or wide gamut of uh, different experiences and, and different kinds of sannyasins. And so kind of one of our pet peeves in documentaries is kind of when you get too many talking heads sometimes. It's mm. hard to really relate to these personal journeys that these characters go on. So just as a rule of thumb, we try to limit the amount of talking heads that we have in our stories. Kind of the main t- talking heads that are sannyasins are kind of three different experiences. You have uh, the lawyer Swami Prem Naran, Mm -hmm. um, who's still very much uh, devoted to Osho um, and his teachings to this day. Um, And then you have Sheila, who's kind of in the middle. She no longer really identifies as a sannyasin. She doesn't speak too highly of the community today, but she's still very much devoted to the guru um, and still has a very uh, deep, profound love for the guru. And then kind of our third main character was Jane, this Australian woman. She's someone now today who definitely feels like she was a member of a cult. She definitely feels like um, maybe that she was, you know, manipulated into doing things that she that she shouldn't have done. But yeah, that said, we did have kind of an archival section, which was called like a day in the life. And it was basically like a four minute section that kind of walked the audience through what it was like for sannyasins to kind of wake up in the desert and go to breakfast and work their jobs and do meditations at night. And it kind of just walked you through what a normal day was. And mm-hmm. because of kind of time restraints, we weren't able to get it in. Um but maybe it's like a special feature we can release at some point to just give the audience kind of an immersive look inside the commune. Yeah. We have some questions, too, from fans. And one of them is a little bit interesting, and it kind of relates to what you're talking about. They're asking, um, should past members of the cult be called survivors, which is a lot of the times what people will be called when they leave an organization like this? Yeah, it's a great question. It's like I think it comes down to basically what uh, members of this community think that their experience was. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. I just, I have to be honest, our vast experience talking to sannyasins, whether even even former ones, they just talked highly about their experience on this ranch. I mean, they definitely said that any pain and trauma they experienced came from the fact that this ranch just collapsed and ended in failure. But other than that, like the sense of um, community that they felt on the ranch was something that they really wished that wow, wow country and what we were doing could could hopefully capture. It was one of those things where at a certain point, I think even their devotion to Bhagwan or their relationship Bhagwan sometimes became secondary to just the yeah. feeling of community and family that they felt. Right. Um, at least, and 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 that's not my analysis or perception. I'm literally just being the messenger, passing <laughs> on just what we heard from like the fifty or sixty sannyasins that we spoke to yeah, on the ranch. Now, that's not to say that yeah. there aren't people who are like, yeah, this was I was a part of a cult and I was brainwashed and I like hated my time on the ranch and it was a very traumatic bad experience so they're out there. It was really interesting because when we talked to the federal officials who were investigating this group they were trying desperately to get these these members of this group to flip on the guru and, and turn over some sort of evidence that would link the guru to these crimes and they spoke openly to us in our interviews how they 
everyone that they interviewed on this ranch just spoke so highly of the Guru. They they had no resentment. They had no anger. And they could not get anyone to give any evidence that would link the Guru to any of these crimes. Yeah. And also, just to add on, this kind of just popped into my head. But one of the things that's interesting is, you know, Wild Wild Country has been out for a while now. And we've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback um, from a lot of our subjects in the documentary and a lot of people on kind of both sides of the story. And I saw that one Sanyasin had written how, like, actually lucky he felt to have survived uh, not the movement so much, but kind of this armed invasion that was coming uh, towards them at the ranch. So in a weird way, I know it's not probably how Survivor was meant by the man or woman who asked the question. But right. like for someone like this man, he was like, I can't believe how in danger I was. Um, and I'm just so thankful that that, yeah. that I'm alive. So it's yeah. just a it's a, it, it's a wide variety of experiences out there. And, and yeah. hopefully like Wild Wild Country can tap into that. Yeah. Um, And kind of talking to I I just I would love to keep talking about the people that you did choose to feature because we talked about the Sanyasins, but we didn't talk about the people of Antelope. And I felt like the town was really a town in transition, like a lot of older people kind of, you know, uh, conservative. Is that the case when you went there and and kind of saw either both at the time of when they were living there and now? Because it almost got set up as a story between the fight between kind of conservative people and kind of Christians versus this new whatever coming in and taking over, whether or not they were a productive community or not, it almost wouldn't have mattered because their ideals were so like crazy and liberal and like free love and whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. One of the interesting things, spending a lot of time in Antelope and getting to know the Bowerman family and spending a lot of time with John Silvertooth, who you know, as a current day mayor of Antelope and, and getting to know that community is they actually all kind of have different political beliefs. You know, Silvertooth, who we interviewed, was actually a huge Bernie supporter and had Bernie stickers up around. And, you know, a lot of them were Trump supporters and a lot, you know, actually a lot of them are libertarians. They're these really like extreme libertarians that want to live off the map. They don't want government involved in their life. And so um, I think just to call them conservative would be a little bit of a stereotype, although there definitely are a lot of conservatives out there. I would say that, yes, Christianity is the predominant religion out there. They have a church right in the middle of their community that most of the members of the, of the town, you know, go to every Sunday and, and during weeknights. It's an integral part of that community. But yeah, getting to know them, you realize that they all had differing viewpoints on on what they were afraid of and what they disliked about this Roshnish community. And for some of them, it was as simple as, hey, they're not Christians. I don't like them. For others, it was, hey, we have a way of life here that we enjoy. We don't want a city of 50,000. You know, those are valid concerns, too. And so, yeah, we just found that they weren't as easy to stereotype also. Just like we like to stereotype kind of cult members, it was a little bit too easy just to stereotype these as one-dimensional bigots. Yeah. It's so interesting because it really is both a lot about land use and laws about the land and the Constitution, but also about religious freedom and kind of the experience of living through the 60s and the 70s and deciding what we do now in the 80s, because they were really like almost a little bit of a relic of the 60s in what they were doing, which was all this, you know, meditation and free love and all of that. And coming to this kind of small town where maybe that experience was a little bit different, these people who were coming from the other side of the country or from other places like to to bring that there it felt very 
like, what do we do in the 80s? You know what I mean? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because it's um, like this wasn't even really something we realized until we were doing uh, interviews for Wow Wow Country. But it was actually the bizarre similarities between Antelope and Roshnish Purim because you would hear each side talk about the towns that they had built. And, you know, uh, Antelope is by and large a pioneer town that they had kind of built their their little city with their church in the middle of it and, and their school that kind of, you know, was a public school, but there was prayer in that public school and and it was certainly a way of life and they had transformed their land um, to build kind of their houses. And even though it's a city, um, it's very communal in Antelope too, and, and it was, and that's exactly what Roshnish Purim was. This was a kind of a story of, of, of people uniting because they have a shared spiritual or religious belief and they wanted to build their kind of utopian commune. Um, I guess what was really interesting is just the cultural divide between these two groups was just so far that it just really couldn't be bridged. And in a lot of ways, Wild Wild Country is kind of a story about what happens when two groups just continue to take steps farther and farther away from conflict resolution or compromise and just become kind of more and more entrenched in a war that ultimately becomes violent at the end. Yeah. I mean, some of the the footage that you guys, the other thing that I was really like, wow, it's crazy to make a documentary about, a, you know, experience like this that is a kind of more modern than a lot of the documentaries we're used to seeing that maybe took place in a little bit farther back in time is how much footage you guys were able to get. Was that because like they were so into filming themselves and their accomplishments and their life and kind of to have as a record because that was part of their world? Or were you really just able to kind of piece together a lot of different stuff? I'm, I was just so curious how you got there's so much footage like that you guys have we got really lucky there was kind of two great sources one of the kind of first main source was that a lot of this archival footage it wasn't just footage that was taken from what aired on the nightly local news we actually had the raw tapes that those cameramen filmed all the unedited footage that didn't make the news broadcast and so We just had hundreds of hours of this unedited raw footage of life on the commune and these newsmen going around and interviewing uh, random people on the ranch. And it just gives the viewer such incredible access to inside the commune. And so that's really rare. But to have as a documentary filmmaker, especially a story that's taken place around 1981, 1982. But these these local news stations at the time, they just they knew that this was such a significant story that was unfolding that they decided, you know, not to tape over the footage that had been shot the previous day, uh, which was customary for news stations. And so we were just incredibly lucky that they decided to keep it and archive it. And they ultimately ended up, you know, donating it to this Oregon Historical Society that has kept, you know, the tapes in great condition over these years. And and then also the guru, Bhagwan, was very kind of on the forefront of digital technologies and tape technologies. And he would they would film his discourses and life on the ranch. And then they would send VHS tapes out to all their communes around the world. And um, they were very much a, a big believer in documenting this this grand experiment. Yeah, well, they had a prideful vibe. Like they were proud of their work. It went. It would make sense for them to be really into documenting everything, especially kind of a lot of the like kind of work they did in terms of building an infrastructure. Because that felt like that was something I'd never seen before in terms of like creating a community where it was like a lot of what they were really into was like how productive they could be, right? Like as a group, where they were just like we meditate and we do all that other stuff, but like mostly we're really proud of our new cafeteria hall. And it's like that is such a wild kind of. Wait. <laughs> yeah, that was some of the that was kind of one of the things that struck us most when we were actually just started watching the footage, you know, four years ago was you really just see this 
city sprout from nothing in the middle of the desert. They build their own hospital. They build their own airport. They have their own police station. They have their own shopping malls. I mean, it's absolutely incredible to see what they were able to build, you know, through their devotion and dedication is is almost kind of mind boggling. And something that we had never really seen documented to that extent to just watch a city get built right in front of your eyes. Right. And and kind of like in a, it, it could show how in many different perspectives it would be seen as a good or a bad thing where it's like, you know, if you are someone, I don't know, like me, if I just saw that, I was kind of just like more impressed by uh, what they were doing, like how you could just kind of go somewhere supposedly unhabitable and, and make something out of nothing, you know, whatever your beliefs are, whatever you're trying to do, like that was just very impressive because they kind of were like, we want to live on the outskirts of society, but we we trust ourselves to make a life there that is valuable and worthwhile and, you know, good for the world or whatever. I mean, I think like, yeah. Yeah, we felt we kind of felt the same way, you know, despite your your religious beliefs that we we found it ultimately kind of inspiring what a dedicated group of individuals can do to kind of create their community. And I kind of saw it as this almost Herculean effort to create their own happiness. And um, there's just some people, you know, that find they're unhappy in their life and, you know, they turn towards depression or drugs or alcohol or whatever their escape is. And I actually uh, found this to be quite a noble cause to kind of all bind together and try and create a community where, where they could kind of find their own happiness. Yeah. What are your kind of big, I know it's so new, like it just came out, but you have been working on it for a long time. And and what are your kind of takeaways from this in terms of maybe the way you like live your life or for future kind of projects that you that you're going to work on? This is like super deep in the weeds. It's kind of inside baseball, but we've gotten the feedback from from our subjects, from the people who participated in the series, and and obviously a lot of people on on both sides on of the aisle here, um, where this story was really important to them. And I think that the most interesting thing has just been not just the positive feedback we've gotten from pe- from from a lot of different people, but also people just talking to me about, wow, I didn't even really hear the other side of this story like ever in my life and it wasn't that what they weren't listening it's just they didn't really hear it like and this is kind of the first time that they're really listening to what it was like for these Roshnishis to come and build this and put their dreams in the city and build this city and then I think for a lot of sannyasins they're hearing for the first time what it was like for Antelopean residents to look out their window and see you know people dressed head to toe in red with semi-automatic weapons walking down their 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 house and so this is just the only reason I'm bringing this up is because when we were doing this show when we were producing this show it just seemed like these groups were never ever going to take an inch towards each other towards any form of understanding and just recently just for me at least what I've been hearing isn't really mea culpas or compromise it's not there yet but like a lot of people still have very very strong feelings about it but for just the first time I've ever that I've ever been involved in this story it's just the first time that anyone on either side has been at least willing to tell me like yeah you know what I I, I this, this is kind of the first time I could understand what it would be like for them so that's just been really fascinating to hear yeah and I think that's even applying to audiences who weren't involved in the story. It's been really interesting seeing reactions on Twitter and Facebook. And I think in today's age, we're just so conditioned to devour news and politics through a very simple prism of right and wrong and left and right. And I think this story really does a really fascinating job of you kind of 
can't come into with any easy answers. You have to do some real critical thinking to see where you fall on these issues because they're not so black and white. And so it's been really fun to see people on Twitter have such a strong reaction in episode one and two and then completely flip their viewpoint by three, four. (laughs) And I think that's something good that, you know, like you, you do have to... Uh, use your mental faculties to do some critical thinking and that it's not so easy just to pin one group versus the other and that, you know, sometimes both groups are right. Maybe sometimes both groups are wrong. And hopefully the takeaway is that people are just kind of reserving initial knee-jerk judgment and doing a little bit more of work to see where where they fall on these issues. Yeah. When's last time you were in Antelope? When, like, when's last time that you were out there? We were probably there about four months ago just to do our kind of like last final pickup shots. Yeah, we kind of went in October. Oh, wow. Sorry. Yeah, we this, went in October. Oh, my God. That feels like We a year haven't ago. been back <laughs> since, but we've, we've talked to, you know, John Silvertooth, who's the mayor of Antelope, who we interviewed in the overalls. And, you know, he told us that the town has been really enjoying the series and that's been a, a big hit in that community. And Good. Now I'm curious, are people going to go there for, like, tourism? If John Silvertooth, like, put on his overalls and gave, like, tours of the area, like, that would be some amazing, an amazing business idea. Be, I've already seen on Instagram people, like, taking photos photos and going through antelope so uh, maybe it'll become a little bit of a tourist attraction for that community i don't know that community likes to be left alone i can i i can have i have per, i have firsthand knowledge <laughs> so i don't know if, if you're going through that town they feel like they've been through a lot well thank you so much for talking to me for so long and uh congratulations um i've literally like everywhere i go i stumble into like a conversation or debate surrounding Wild Wild Country, which is truly crazy. And I all love contributing my bad ideas. So thank you for giving us a <laughs> an excuse. Wait, so 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 would you join Roshni's Purim or would you are are you on the antelope side? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot and like I probably would have been in the mindset as a twenty something to have joined this. And I'm wearing red. And red is a good color on me. And I just really, (laughs) it's hard to say that because like there's so much problematic stuff. So it's like kind of, you know, you don't really want to join the bad cult. But I think there is like a lot of community stuff that I find that I personally would have been very excited about. (laughs) Cool. That's awesome. That was Lindsay Weber with Chapman and McLean Way. And now let's hear from you. Here are some of our favorite fan reactions to Wild Wild Country. This tweet is from at D underscore Hagar. The way we feel watching Wild Wild Country is how the rest of the world feels watching America. This tweet is from at Stanky Beans. My first thoughts about Wild Wild Country, I would really love a maroon tracksuit. They're stylish as hell. This tweet comes from at Alicia P. Santi. Wild Wild Country is definitely living up to its name because, damn, it is wild. A cult? Voter fraud? Poisoning? Politics? It has it all! Just when you think it can't get any more unreal, oh, it does. It does. If you want to share your thoughts on any upcoming shows, make sure to find us on Twitter at Can't Make This Up or on Facebook at You Can't Make This Up Netflix. On every episode of You Can't Make This Up, we also have a segment we like to call Whatcha Watching." It's where we find out what the people who make these Netflix original series and films are watching on Netflix. Here's Chapman and McLean again. 
I'm a little bit late to it, so I'm almost embarrassed to be saying this because it's so late, but uh, my wife and I have really gotten into Mindhunter uh, lately. Yeah, I've been watching, um, again, like there's a really popular one. I've been watching The Crown, uh, which I thought was amazing. And then I actually didn't watch Wormwood until we had finished Wild Wild Country. I'm a huge, huge Errol Morris fan, but I watched Wormwood and, and, and I loved it. And, and, and the stylization that Errol Morris can do is just like top notch. And he, the fact that he can still pull that stuff off is, is incredible. And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new series for you to dig into. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. This is You Can't Make This Up. I'm Ray Vada, and thanks for listening. <laughs>